You can turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And as soon as I find out where I'm at, we'll all do this together. You just got to switch from you to me. You'll get it figured out. We're getting there. Matthew chapter 5. There we are. We're going to talk about a, the... Uh, we left off kind of last week with verse 20, I believe. Matthew 5, 20. We're going to go back and just revisit something. Uh, I know some of these issues we're dealing with in Matthew chapter 5 are difficult. I'm looking through various people that I've talked to, and some of you may have been brought up with Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, is rules to live by. Um, and that's got some issues in it that we'll deal with, but there are some application points we need to make sure we understand. Uh, and, and I think we need to keep that. So we're going to talk about basically chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So I th- sat there and I said, before I start verse, go, go over to verse 20 and start verse 20 and kind of work into the fullness of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, I thought I'd discuss some of these ideas of abolishing the law. What does it really mean? And what would happen if Jesus did abolish the law? Now, first of all, I want you to understand something. Uh, sometimes for translation purposes, people st- are very rigid on translation. What I mean by rigidness is if a word means, means something in translation that's of that time period, they use the one uh, that makes more sense to their theology sometimes. You with me so far? They don't go to the variations, and it's very hard. If you were doing really solid translation work, uh, sometimes you'd have to say these four or five words may kind of translate this one small Greek word. So when you talk about the idea of fulfillness, um, Jesus himself established the law, first of all. So let's think about this. Jesus, being the very God incarnate, also established the law. In other words... He was involved in the writing and the giving of it. Not only just the civil law or the what we would call the Ten Commandments or, or the uh, ceremonial law, all of it. And the law means this. Let me kind of give you a picture because my grandson called me and he had a very good question for an eight-year-old. He goes like, Granddad, you said something about Torah. I don't know how many times on Sunday. What's the Torah? Now, I thought I explained it, but let's kind of re-explain it for a minute. When we're talking about Torah, we're talking about instruction. That's what the word translated from Hebrew means. It means instruction. But it became part of the whole Old Testament. So when you refer to Torah, it can be the whole Old Testament. Okay? Most of the time we refer to it, and I kind of gave you a slide last week, that's called the Tanakh. That's what it's called. It involves three parts, and that's what the Bible, the, the Old Testament is to the Hebrew people. If we look at our Hebrew scriptures today, we can call it the Tanakh, or we can say Torah. Torah can also re- just revolve around some laws. It could be all laws. It could be just the laws they're talking about. Um, many times, though, the third thing also involved in Torah is the writings of Moses himself. We refer to that as the Pentateuch, those five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And if you began this year reading through the Bible, most of you are still in 
generations, right? Genesis. You've begun with a strong thing. Uh, call me after you hit Deuteronomy if you're still sticking it out. Okay? Because it's hard. Because you get through some of these things that are very much not uh, understood fully. And you're just reading to read. Don't do that. Read it. And if you got questions, write them down. And I said this for a reason. Many of you will have questions for the next couple of weeks as we do the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know how many lessons I'm going to do and how much I want to expand on some of these thoughts, such as thou shalt not commit murder and adultery and taking of oaths and so on, or just want to just teach it and move on and deal with it at another time. But we're going to deal with certain... But if you have a question, I love 3 by 5 cards. Don't buy them for my birthday. I love 3 by 5 cards because they're really good to write a question on, and I can actually, this is why, you could put them in, I could put them in my pocket. If I put them in my pants pocket, it may be get, you know, laundered, and it, I can't read it. But if it goes here, I have a tendency to take things and put it in. So give me 3 by 5 cards with a question, and I will one Sunday take all the questions, lay them out here, and we'll answer them with me. If you can't find a 3 by 5 card, you can't ask me. I have them. <laughs> or someone might have a stack in, somewhere in this building. So do feel free to ask questions. Uh, so first of all, to fulfill the law, Jesus establishes the law. Second of all, Jesus came on earth to bring the law, the whole Old Testament, the Torah. He brought all of the law to its intended goal. Without Jesus, I don't know what you get out of the Old Testament. Without the Messiah, who Jesus is, what's the Old Testament about? And if you're looking at the Old Testament today and you're expecting a Messiah that's not Jesus, I don't know what to expect. Because if you understood the Old Testament and the prophecies and the laws that were given and what it drives to and the instructions it was giving, I don't know what Messiah you would have. And many people have claimed to be Messiah. I don't know if you know this. It's, I don't think it's a today issue as big as it used to be, but there's been uh, red, white, black, orange, yellow messiahs, okay? Because God loves variety, right? But God only cared about one, the one true messiah, who only Jesus could be, okay? All those other ones were false messiahs, and, and according to my Bible, many false messiahs will rise in a point of, of history, human history, um, but Jesus brought, and if you look at not one verse, but all the verses, and say, and you pull these prophetic verses together and say, who fulfills those? Jesus. Jesus brought them to its intended goal. So if you look at the word fulfill, and you would look this up in a Greek lexicon, this word fulfill means to bring to its intended goal. That's what I'm using as a translation. Jesus himself also demonstrated the law in his life as he led an obedient life to the law. Jesus led a perfect life. He was, he, at one point he even says, for what sin do you prosecute me for? What, what, what I do? Name the sin. And you can't because Jesus led a life oriented to the law. He was very law abiding. Let's talk about the word abolish for a minute. Abolish, you can say do away with, eradicate, whatever you want to do. I mean, we all know what abolish is, okay? What if Jesus did abolish the law? Let's just ask that question. Let's go in the opposite, because if this is the, in, according to verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5, this was a presupposition of the people. They had supposed, that's why Jesus said, do not think, or basically stop coming up with this presupposition that I came to abolish the law. And it's fascinating, that word coming, it's talking about the coming one. Jesus is the one to come. So if you say, who's the Messiah? Well, he's the one to come. 
Who could replace Jesus? You know, got me so far? It's just interesting. So what if Jesus did come and he abolished the law? He said, no more law. Well, first of all, if he said no more law, let me tell you this. Okay? Number one, there would be no need for Israel. But yet I look out there and there's still what? Israel. And Israel still being a thorn in, in the Arabs' neck. Uh, last I checked, they sent two F-35s over Syria and bombed again. And, and America said, we have nothing to do with that. And we don't, but Israel does take total responsibility because they're going to deal with their enemies decisively. Okay? But that was Israel that did that. If there's no more law, Old Testament, it was done away with, why would there be an Israel? Because we could definitely say what? What a lot of people say today, the church replaced Israel. We don't need them. And that's a horrible theology. So the second thing, if the law was abolished, there'd be no need for Israel, and it'd only be the church. And if there's plenty of places to see Israel's Israel. You all know how to read English, right? If it says Israel, you can't make it say anything else. You can't make it say, you know, Ben's, uh, what is it, Ben's ice cream. You can't make it say that. It only only be Israel. Israel's Israel, right? And if it says the church, you can't make it what? Anything else other than the body of Christ. It's church, right? Hope you understand the simplicity of reading, because sometimes people don't. Uh, and when you make things say what it doesn't say, you become an allegorist, and it can mean anything at that point. So why do you have the Bible? Uh, thirdly, if, there's, if the law was abolished, there's no need for the Old Testament and any of its prophecies. Those that are in the Messiah, to deal with the Messiah, or those to come in the coming ages. There's a lot of prophecies about the coming ages. Uh, there's many prophecies, if you don't know this, still to be fulfilled. And why would you look at uh, or deal with or even have a subject of prophecy if they've all been fulfilled? Look with me at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. So let's tie some verses to this. Uh, and I think this is what happens. People read verses and make mistakes and even reading simple things. Okay? John chapter 1, verse 17. Yeah, there, I hear a few pages turning. I like the sound of pages. By the way, when we did hymns, it's nice to see people actually using the blue books. Okay? Once in a while. Uh, if you notice, the second song we sung was in 12-8 time. 12-8 time. Do you know that's really hard? If I'm not mistaken, that's hard to write 12-8, right? It's hard to play it? How do you, you did okay with 12-8? <laughs> I'm not a music guy. I play, I play the button that says play. I'm really good at pushing that thing. Um, John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Christ. So people read this verse, know how they read it? Grace, uh, uh, the law was given through Moses and it ended. And then we understood grace and truth only at that point on because Christ was here. That's not what this verse says. Right? We understand what this verse says. that To understand fully what Moses was doing as a mediator, he was bringing the law. What is Christ doing? He's bringing an understanding of grace and truth. Did you not have grace and, uh, and, tr- and, and truth in the Old Testament? And if somebody walks up to me and says, No grace, no truth till Jesus came. What's the Old Testament? I'm at a loss. Do you understand? Okay. <laughs> it's just showing you who, who the greater mediator is. Of a, of a greater thing. But there was always grace and truth. I, I've read the Bible, so we're pretty clear on that. Um, go to Hebrews chapter 10. Again, what we're getting is a picture of what, what happened if Jesus would have abolished the law. 
And there are verses that help, help us understand a few things. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 is a really great verse. That, and, and sometimes we've got to get a good picture of what the law was intended to do anyway. First of all, there are some people today that think the law was intended to save people. I don't know how the law would save anybody because all it did was condemn people. You all know that, right? Uh, if you ever read the Ten Commandments, there's nothing in there that really says, uh, thank you for doing this kind of thing. It's saying, don't do this because God knows what. Man will have a proclivity to do those things. He says, don't do these things. So it's a warning sign of don't do these things. Uh, that's not a, a good way to deal with some people. Some people don't like negatives, but... In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, it gives us a good understanding of the law. It says, for, for the law, since it is only a shadow or an outline or a sketch. Um, did anybody ever trace? Have you ever used tracing paper? Anybody ever used tracing paper? That, that thin, like onion skin thing. And if you put it over a picture, you can make the perfect. And it makes you a great artist because you pull it off and say, look what I drew. And what you did was not draw anything. You traced something. Um, that tracing... And the picture, so let's say you put the onion skin paper over Van Gogh. And you made a Van Gogh and you pulled off the tracing and say, look, I did a Van Van Gogh. And you say, no, that's just an outline. It's not the reality. It's just a sketch. So that's the picture I want you to get. For the law, since it was only a shadow of good things to come, never the very form of things can, can never by the same sacrifices year by year which they are continually offered make perfect those who draw near. The sacrifices were never meant for salvation. It was only a picture of the reality to come. A foreshadowing. Okay? So when Christ came, he was the reality. The law served his purpose to Christ to bring people what? A sketch of what the reality would be like. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Romans 10, 4. And again, in my New American Standard Version, um, I'm going to tell you a little secret about it. Who has a New American Standard Version? I'm going to give you this year's secret to the New American Standard Version. Sometimes it'll give you a shape or a number or, you know, like a diamond or something and say, go look over in the side column for another word. New American Standard does really well in the side column. Okay? So when you see that number or the triangle or a circle or something that refers you out to the side, take the word that they're doing, using, and plug it back in. You have a better translation. You with me? Because you've got to... Romans chapter 10, verse 4, it says, For Christ is the end. Notice mine has a diamond. Everybody have a diamond that's got a numeric or something? And it says, go over to the side column. Side column says what? Anybody? You all said you had a New American Standard. Huh? Huh? Who? Romans 10, 4. No, it should have next to the word end, E-N-D, it should have a, a, a shape if you have a New American Standard. Goal! That's a perfect word. End means it's done, it's stopped, it's over. Right? Goal means it's gone to a place, it's gone to its its intended purpose. So when Christ came, for Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So you want to know what Christ did? He brought those believers to its intent, their intended place of the law. What's the intended place of the law? Righteousness. Right? 
to realize you don't have it. So as a believer, guess what? I've reached my goal because I have the righteousness of Christ because he gave it to me. And that was the goal of the law. You see? Isn't that great? I don't know about you. That's great for me. Uh, those of you who have the... New, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Romans 10.4. Romans 10.4. Now we're going to Galatians 3.24. Galatians 3.24. Galatians 3.24. Now, let me, let me give you a, a little help with this understanding of abolishing the law. If the Messiah was to come, the Messiah's purpose, even in the Old Testament, was never to abolish the law. You cannot find a verse or anything that says when the Messiah comes, no more law. So even people today that say there's no more law, it's not in existence, we're believers, we don't have any relationship with the law. That's kind of true, but there's still law, right? There's still the law in the Old Testament, and if you're an unbeliever, you're going to be banging up against that law. Because it requires certain things of you. And that's what Jesus will be dealing with in Matthew chapter 5. The intention of that law and where it was going. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. So the law was like, hey, here's what the law is. Think of the law as a yellow school bus. I know it's probably a crazy analogy, and I know all analogies have holes in it. But think of us, what's a school bus's intended purpose? It's to take a kid from their home to where they could be what? Hopefully. I'm not going to say anything about public schools. But the, the school bus's purpose, and I know um, we have tutor, and, if, and again, if you go to the side column of the New American Standard, what does it say? You see the tutor has a diamond again? You go to side column, what does it say? Child conductor. I think it's a little better. I think more the idea of somebody that's a, uh, that takes a child from a place to another place to learn. Okay? That's the idea. And when we look at the law, it was, it was intended to do this so that we may be justified by faith. Verse 25 says, but now that faith has come, now that you have the faith, now that you have a faith understanding in Christ, we are no longer under that child conductor, that school bus driver. We Why? Because we've arrived. That's all. We didn't say the law's been done away with. It served its purpose. It served its purpose to bring us to the faith. Okay, And I think this is specifically at this point, talking to the Hebrew people at that point, the Jewish people of the Galatian church. But the point is, the purpose is to bring people to the Lord. You know, here's the fault of what we would say the Jewish people at Sinai. When the Lord said, I'm going to give you a law, before he gave it, they said something very interesting. They said, all these things we will do. I'm a very firm believer and do not say I will submit to the instructions until I know what they are. Okay? Think about it. You go, you go into an organization or uh, any place and they have rules of engagement. And you say, I'll, I'll, don't worry about it. I'll do them all. And you don't read them. Oh, you are a fool. Right? Because you don't know what the terms are. And I know some of you bought cars and bought houses and infinitesimal amount of paperwork and you're not going to read them all. But it's still, it's there because they're, they're going to find a loophole to put you through something because of the terms of the laws. 
And Israel said, no, God, we'll do all these things. And they turned out to be grumbling, rebellious, and had and murmured all through the wilderness wanderings because God told them to do something. And then God said, I'll provide. And there's, you know, God's providing food. And they're saying, what? Ew. Can't we have a different menu? Is this all you have on the menu? You know, the menu was titled, what is it? You ever have a kid to have dinner? And the kid said, what is that? Well, every Jewish person learned that in the wilderness because they said, what is that? What is it? And it's the same thing for months. What is this? But all these things we will do. Um, so be careful of that. Thirdly, what we have here is, is the law never annulled the Abrahamic covenant. AC means Abrahamic covenant. does not mean air conditioning. Just so that you... I'm trying to be short with certain things, so i got to be careful. Somebody said, the law took out the air conditioning. I mean, they were, they were, no wonder they were miserable. <laughs> um, think of this for a minute. Well, we're still in Galatians. Go back to verse 17 of chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 17 says, For what I'm saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, after the Abrahamic uh, involvement with God, the law came later. In other words, there's a big gap between Abraham being told of a nation and Moses establishing a nation with the covenant. Okay? There's a gap. And we, there's some interesting things we could do with the 430 years because there's confusion over it. But Paul says 430 years, okay? Uh, but it does not invalidate the covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Law had nothing to do with the promise. Okay? The law was only a contract or a covenant between God and the nation of Israel. What's more important, what supersedes that is the Abrahamic covenant. It goes on in verse 18. Chapter 3, verse 18. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of promise. In other words, God promised Abraham something, and Abraham had to do what to get the promise? Nothing. What did Abraham just had to be? Abraham. Right? And God said, I promise to do this to you. And, and Abraham, to get this, you got to do... No, never said that. But for the, the people of the nation of Israel, in order for them to be blessed, they had to do the, and bo- obey the law. They had to obey it. Otherwise, if they didn't, they would be cursed. So there was parameters or a paradigm in the law, not in promise. So be careful what you promise people. Right? Because the promise is all on you. And some people will say, I promise to do this if you do that. That's really not a promise according to the Bible. That's a, that's a negotiating terms of, the, of what you're going to do, but it's not a promise according to the Bible. Verse 19 says, chapter 3, verse 19, Why the law then? Good question! <laughs> right? Because that's what we've been talking about. Why the law then? It is added, the law was added, because of transgression, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. The law... Was it was put in because to identify the nation of Israel, their sin, and it was meant for when the Messiah came, they could identify the one that would give them the forgiveness they needed as a nation. And we're not studying Galatians; we'll do that soon. I think there's more to that verse that we'll deal with at that point, but we're not doing it with it this morning. Um, but I think the last part to understand this abolishing the law idea, we have to deal with the last thing up here in the slide. The Pharisee and scribe both taught, thought 
Jesus came to abolish the law, the Torah, and tradition. I want you to understand what Jesus is up against when he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll go through, as we go through it, we'll bring up some of the understanding of the scribes and Pharisees. Um, now, first of all, so you understand what's going on. If it's the Word of God only that they were dealing with, I would have an understanding of why they said certain things. But the scribes and the Pharisees... Now, let me try and distinguish between a Pharisee and a scribe. One was the one that uh, made the laws up. The other one made sure the laws got carried out. The scribe was the lawyer. You would go to the lawyer. The Pharisee was the religious authority. So the scribes within that were the ones that basically were the attorneys at law. Do whatever you want with that understanding. Um, the, the law or the Torah is important. It was the number one thing, but it was added to, in, in this time frame, it was a thing called rabbinic traditions. The, rab, the rabbis had come to rise during the intertestamental period, and when the rise of the Pharisees came and the Sadducees, they be, took it upon themselves that oral tradition held a higher place. Now here's why. I will disagree with it, but here's why. Because they figured Moses had written documents, and during that time, Moses also constantly talked with God and was, to, was told things that we would call, be called in the first class philosophical things that would help us to um, dish out and mete out the law. But the problem is, with any tr- tradition... They're good until they become elevated to a point that they're, be, they're above Scripture. And the Pharisees, for instance, there's a time where the Pharisees will ask Jesus, why, don't he, why doesn't he and his disciples wash their hands before they eat? Now, most of us say, well, yeah. I mean, we're in a day and age, everybody's like a, a germaphobe, right? They, they wash their hands now and you don't even want to open the door. You're like doctors coming out of the bathroom. You know, because you, want, you don't want to even touch the door. You don't know who's been there. Um, nothing necessarily wrong with that, but their washings were religious and had to do with their relationship to God. It wasn't relationship to being clean hands. They also had more traditions with cleansings and baths. And that's why if you ever go to, Jeru- go to the pr- promised land, not just Jerusalem, you'll find a lot of public baths there. It's not because everybody wants to swim together. It's because the law, the Pharisees required a lot of mikvahs, baths, to get clean. Uh, so you probably say, well, that's a really cool society. That's the, everybody should be, you know, look at, you know, go take a bath kind of thing. But that's not, again, religious purposes, n- nothing else. Um, and their religious traditions led to biblical interpretations that were not right either. Okay? Be with me, because we're going into Sermon on the Mount. You've got to know this. Uh, Jesus did not... Re- uh, uh, and, and basically, Jesus didn't regard these traditions as anything. He could care less about traditions. And we'll see that as we go through. I'm not going to go through the verses now. We'll be going through some of them as we do that. Uh, they, they were observers of fasts. Now, I'm going to say something. I don't want to show of hands. But how many of you religiously, just think of this, not show of hands. How many of you religiously fast? Now, I know there's a diet out there now that says fast a day, eat like a pig for two days. I don't know what it's called. There's fasting diets. There's all sorts of different diets, whatever. Everybody comes up with something great. Uh, the Ezekiel diet. No, it's Daniel diets. I'd rather have the Ezekiel diet. That'll make you nauseous. You'll never eat anything. Just read Ezekiel. You'll, your diet will change. Uh, they should come up with John the Baptist diet, right? 
locusts and honey. They get shipped to you every week from the bee company or something. I don't know. You know, and you get all this, hey, look at this. Well, this is a really big uh, uh, locust here. That's really going to be nutritious. But we, we you know, uh, when we talk about these things, eating habits and fast, they were very rigid, the Pharisees, on how often they fasted. And you could tell when they were fasting. They looked like they hadn't eaten for months. Ugh, what I would do for a Klondike bar, you know, kind of thing. It's like, I'm hungry. Okay? Well, you've only been fasting for three hours. You know, it's like, get over yourself. Because they wouldn't fast for long extended periods of time. Um, but Jesus didn't observe these weekly fasts. He didn't make big distinctions between clean and unclean. Uh, Jesus ate with sinners, right? Tax gatherers. Now, I don't know about you all. I know tax season's coming up. Most of you don't want to eat with anybody that has anything to do with taxes. Pretty lonely, isn't it, Nathan? Nathan's saying, well, nobody even comes to my office. They're all hiding from me. Um, And here's the difference. Everywhere Jesus taught, the Pharisees were agitated because everyone said, man, this guy teaches with authority, which means the Pharisees were teaching what? Without authority. They, They really didn't have any wasn't any oof to what they were doing. It was more like, oh, if we don't do it, we could be in trouble kind of thing. Uh, so, so I want you to put all these things as we walk in to the next section and look at some things. So we're going to look at verse 20. We're going to make a hyper jump to Matthew verse, chapter 5, verse 20, uh, and prayerfully finish this this morning. Um, now, I want us to understand something, because I have in my notes, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this kind of loosely. Did the scribes and the Pharisees not teach the Torah? In other words, did they teach the Old Testament? The answer is, yeah, but not really. If you ever want to have some fun, read through John chapter 3, where Jesus is having a discussion with Nicodemus, and and he even says to Nicodemus, aren't you like one of the chief teachers of the Pharisees of that time? Aren't you one of the chief teachers, and you don't know what it means to be born again? Like, what? You're a teacher. You're the one that should know the Torah. You have no idea? That there's a necessity for being born a new birth, uh, and and you got to ask yourselves these spiritual leaders of Israel, what did they do? So verse twenty says this, Matthew five twenty. For I say to you, unless your righteousness, he's talking to the disciples mainly, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now I want you to understand something. Jesus is not a publicly nice person. This is a totally politically incorrect statement. Because he's not in a closed door environment. He's in an outward public venue. And I'm sure he's like E.F. Hutton. He's speaking and people are getting closer and closer and leaning in. And some of those people we know are Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes that are listening in. And he's basically saying they have no entrance into the kingdom because their righteousness is horrible. And wait a second. Oh, I am perfectly righteous. Do you realize I sat there and prayed and I listened to the publican and and he's not righteous. I am. And that's it's. See, they were not entering the kingdom because they had not repented about who he was. They had not changed their mind. Almost every Pharisee, except for three that I can name biblically. I know there's probably more, but biblically we can name three, did not accept him as Messiah. We have Nicodemus, 
right? Everybody knows who Nikki is. He's got a whole chapter, we just said that. Joseph of Arimathea. And, anybody got the third? Time on the clock. Come on. Paul said, I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul. Three. Those are good catches, I want you to know. But these are the only three that kind of said Jesus is our Messiah. And they identified with him as their Messiah. And probably uh, Nicodemus and Joseph of Marimathia had a lot to deal with at the end. And Paul had a lot to deal with everywhere we go. Uh, These Pharisees and scribes taught man's laws, man's traditions, the west and the less weightier Torah tradition, Torah laws than anything, and yet they considered themselves righteousness. So we're going to talk about what the righteous requirements of the kingdom are. Because if your righteousness has to surpass the self-righteousness, what would the disciples' understanding is that? What did they have to be careful? What did they have to do, or what did they have to be? You with me? I think it's important because Jesus just gave a very provocative statement. Your righteousness has to surpass the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees. And if you would look, listen, if you would look at the scribes and Pharisees, you'd say, those are godly people. Have you ever seen anybody on TV and they're talking and they're being interviewed? I don't care what religious persuasion they are. And you say, that's a really godly person. Right? And as a believer, you kind of look at it and say, I don't even know if this person knows Christ, but he's a godly person. And if you don't know Christ and don't have him as your Savior, you are not a godly person. You are self-righteous. You're a buffoon or a blowhard or whatever you want to call him. I'm trying to be nice because I don't want to fall into the section that we're going to look at later that says I should go to hell for saying something wrong. We'll deal with that. I know you guys are all looking ahead now, Matthew. What? Your speech can send you there? So be careful. I have a reason I said that. So go with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Let me see what I have in there. Luke chapter, we're on this slide. Uh, the righteous requirement of the kingdom. We're going to talk about that. And then we're going to look at Luke chapter 18. And what I'm about to say uh, in a few of these things. Now, I've got to be as clear as I can because I said something. I want you to understand this clearly as I can say this. Jesus had every right to say what he said because he knew it was in the heart of the Pharisees. You understand it's not our job to go up to somebody and be so blatant. I don't think God gives us that authority unless we know somebody and we can confront an individual about what they believe and we understand what they believe, but we just can't be uh, as dynamic as Jesus was with his speech and people. So we're in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, and it says, And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Uh, so we could put in there Pharisees. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood, the Pharisee, the Pharisee, stood and was praying thus to himself. I love that. You, you want to look for comedy? Go to the Bible. It's great. God's got a sense of humor. I don't know if you know that. The Pharisee was lifting up and looking like this and he was praying to himself. Get the picture? Great. Uh, and then he says, God, I thank thee, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people. That's a great prayer. Now, yesterday I had a wonderful prayer going. I'm glad my 49ers are not like the other team. We're killing them. Yes! 
But that had that wasn't a prayer. That was kind of like a wish list. <laughs> he's saying he's saying very clearly this Pharisee that I'm not like other people. I'm not a swindle. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like the tax gatherer. Okay, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that of all that I get. You know, because some people will say, "What do you, Pastor? What should I give to the church? Should I give out of my net?" Or what? Don't ask me stupid questions. You know, gross or net? I think you should grossly give as much as God puts on your heart. But here's what the Pharisees are saying: I give as much as I can give within legal parameters, not more, not over, not over, and never under. You know, you ever do this? That's what he's doing. But the tax gatherer, stand some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes up to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. I am the sinner. I am the sinner. I tell you, this man went out, went to his house justified or declared righteous rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. You get the picture? So this is where the scribes and Pharisees were at. They were self-inflating, obnoxious baboons that had a religious title and had some power and said some of the stupidest things biblically. Where do you find that in, in any biblical scripture? They were making it up. How did he know what he was? He did a self-examination test, which is sometimes horrible. And he says, these are the things I checked off the list. I nailed it. But the one he forgot was that he was a sinner. Matthew chapter 23. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the woes to the Pharisees and scribes. Fun, some fun stuff. We will be doing this in Matthew 23 when we get there in a couple of months. And no matter what I say and when we're going to get somewhere, it's still going to be kind of... Uh. Matthew 23, verse 27 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Now, I don't know about you. Somebody called me a hypocrite, I'd kind of be a little offended. I, w- I would say what? Show me where. I want to know what. Okay. So Jesus does. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful. In other words, they look religious. They were dressed probably ornately. They were religious on the outside. They did everything religiously they were supposed to do. They appeared beautiful on the outside. But inside, you stink. You're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. In other words, you, you're for stunkta inside, even though you've got this ex- ex- uh, uh, exorbitant outside you're an ornate outside. Now, the only way I can give you a picture of that is I used to have a coffee cup that I used all the time. And I don't care what was in it and how long it had been in it. I did do one of these once in a while. But I just kept, and Lizzie would say, you've got to put it in a washing machine. i go, why? I'm just putting more coffee in it. Get the picture? But I forgot this thing where it was for like a week. And it still looked like my coffee cup. Mine. But inside, ooh. And that's a Pharisee. Yeah, ooh. And that's what Jesus is looking at. Notice what he says. He goes on. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now who could do that? Jesus could do that and, and, and basically pull out of them where they are spiritually. Okay? 
And I think that's important for us to see. So the description of the scribes and Pharisees is hypocrites because why? They, they didn't match. Their inside couldn't match their outside. Romans chapter 10, verse 3, Paul says, uh, well, well, let's just read it. I think you need to go see this anyway. In Romans chapter 10, we did do sp- uh, spend some time in here in verse 3. For knowing about God's, for not knowing about God's righteousness. For not knowing about God's righteousness. You know a bad place to be? Is ignorant of God's righteousness. Because God has a standard for us to enter into His presence. He says, be holy as I am as holy. How are you all doing on that? Are you doing good? And I say, yeah, I'm doing excellent. Because why? I'm in Christ. You with me? I'm not doing it on my own. If I did it on my own, I would be really... The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Short doesn't mean almost. It means short. Not on the target. Not on the wall. I, I, I used to have a dartboard when I was younger, and i put it on the wall, and I'd stand way back, and I'd do like I was a pitcher. I'm, gonna, I'm not darting. I'm throwing pitches. And I don't know how many times I had huge holes off the target. Because it's hard to throw a dart that hard from that far away and hit the target. you got to do one of those dart things, right? You all know what darts are? Don't play with them. You'll hurt yourself, right? Mama says, be careful. You'll kill somebody. I don't know if anybody ever died with a dart. But you always get that. But, but these people, it says, for not knowing the righteousness, God's righteousness, and seeking, listen, and seeking to establish their own. That's real good, because you can set the bar where you want it. You know, you ever seen that? Where's the bar? You know, I want to do, uh, what's that thing called when you go under the bar? Limbo. I'm going to do a limbo. I can do limbo all the time, but the bar set at 5 foot 10. I can limbo. You set that bar at 2 foot. I'm not going under that thing. I'm old, first of all. Second of all, I couldn't do it when I was young. I could belly crawl under it. But that's what they're doing. Where's the bar of righteousness? God says, be holy as I am holy. Man says, I'm good enough. Notice what it says at the end of this, though. They, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Didn't meet the standard, but I'm good. Why are they good? Because they're ignoramuses as far as they're concerned about God's righteousness. In Philippians chapter 3, turn there. This is Paul's understanding of where he went in life and what he understood. And we'll, we'll pick, I know it says verse 8, but we're going to pick up at verse 5. So Philippians 3, 5. I'm going to teach you all a word. You can go home and you can feel really... Now, be careful. Words mean things. But I'm going to teach you a word that's kind of offensive that Paul uses. But, you know, sometimes a good, well-chosen word at the right time makes impact. You know that, right? Uh, There are words that have more impact. And in verse 5, it says, Paul's given a self-documentary of who he was. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is found in the law, what? Blameless. What was he using? He was using his understanding of the law as a Pharisee to say, I looked at the law and I'm blameless. Okay? That means you couldn't put anything against this charge. So if he said, Paul, did you murder anybody? Nope. 
Paul, did you, you have adultery? No. Paul, did you make false vows? No. Until he was rammed up against it, and then he understood he coveted later in Romans chapter 7. He said, ugh, didn't know that one. Didn't read that right. But he was, in his eyes, what? Blameless, right? He didn't say, according to God, I was blameless. He says, according to the law, I was blameless. Verse 8 says, More than that, I count all things to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, the Messiah, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered a loss of all things. Forget about the law. Forget about being a Pharisee. Forget about being in the tribe of Benjamin and being a uh, 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 circumcision and, and aligning with the, the things that are needed in the law. I've lost it all because I'm in, uh, it's all about Christ. And count them, you with me? Verse 8, and count them as rubbish in order that I may, uh, that I may be gain Christ. He considered the things in life that he had done is rubbish. The word is skubala. It is not rubbish. I can't even say it in church. It's not a curse word. It's just it's it's not vulgar. It's a strong word for garbage. Okay? That's what he counts it as. It's useless. It's good for nothing. Everything I've done in life counts as nothing if it's without Christ. Are you with me? It's important to understand that when he talks about his current righteousness in light of his previous righteousness that he had that was self-driven by a self-examination. Verse 9 says this, And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, right? But that which is through faith, through the faith, in the object of Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's it. If you want to have a verse to understand exactly the relationship of somebody to the law, Paul nails it. Right? The law brought him, the school bus, the child counselor brought him to a place that he realized he needed a savior. And he knew that all the stuff he had done in life meant nothing without Jesus. Can you see that? It's really neat, isn't it, to see that Paul had arrived at this point and understood it fully. And people say, well, what does it mean about the law and everything? Here's Paul's testimony. A fantastic understanding of what was going on. So what what I want to do is, um, well, just take a moment. Um, I want to just, before I do that slide, I want to talk about... Matthew chapter 5, real quick, some things in here we need to understand before we actually address some things. So go back to Matthew chapter 5. And I want us to understand something before we get too deep into this. Uh, verse, verse 18 will begin the flow of things, and verse 20 says it also. So, to, so since we're dealing with 20, we'll look at 20. But it says, for I say to you, for I say to you, now, here's the problem. Here's the problem people look at. Was Jesus making more law up? Was he giving you an, an expansion on the law uh, or, or a fuller understanding? I would say here, A, Jesus is not making up new laws. If he did, he can. He's God. Okay? If he did, he can. He's God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because people have a problem with Jesus adding new laws. But he can't add new laws... To ones that are already on the books, he's got to give what? A fuller understanding. And I think that the language here will help us understand that. Because Jesus is saying very emphatically, I, 
And only I am saying this to your advantage. So when you see this, I say to you, put as, it's very emphatic, I, I am saying who Jesus is, I am saying to you, and I believe his initial audience is the disciples, to your advantage. I am to have something to say that will give you a leg up. Okay? He's giving you some inside help to understand how important godly righteousness, godly righteousness is versus man's self-understanding of righteousness. You with me? Because I don't know how many people you would walk up to and if you did a survey and say, are you righteous enough to go to heaven? Most of them would look at you like, what are you talking about? But I think, I believe there's still people today that say, I'm good. They're, they use different terms, I'm okay. I think when I get to heaven, God will accept me. And I always want to say, really? What gives you that clue? You know, where did you come off thinking those things? Because uh, man wants to look and self-examine their lives and think they're they're okay. Because, you know, it's really good if you want to do something. You can do this any day you want. Find somebody evil and compare yourself to them. And you'll think you're what? The greatest person God ever created. You'll look at that person and say, wow, I've never been that bad. I must be, thank God God made me. He must be so thrilled I'm alive. Because I'm not like that guy. And that's kind of pharisaical understanding, right? Because you can always find somebody to compare yourself to. But I don't want to be like that guy because he's really great. So I don't know. He must have an inside to a higher part of heaven. Okay? And that's a, that's a bad place to be. But here's what I want you to understand. Jesus is contrasting by what he's saying as an authoritative, rabbinic teacher, God-man, with what the Pharisees had always said or what they had repeated from the Word of God. We're only going to deal with basically five statements, but, but, but I want you to understand the whole thing that runs through this, the main point is what man must do to get a, a righteousness God will accept. Because verse 20 is the pivot point. Verse 20 is important because verse 20 is saying your, your righteousness has to surpass the religious righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes. It's got to be better. Got to be different. Got to be uh, a higher understanding. So that's what they're up against. Now, I'm going to say this. We're dealing with Israel as a nation. Israel's national spiritual acumen had been bankrupt since day one. There's not a time we could say national Israel was really spiritually on the ball. There are times that they were better as a nation. We're talking about national Israel, not individuals. Because we can always pull out individuals, and we can pull out individuals and say, and we could be very philosophical. I, I, I've been fighting with God, and he's winning. Because um, I don't know why he ever never punished David. Really, the punishment I would like to see meted out for some of the things David did. And I'm going, how did David get away with all this? Um, but, and it's hard, because David got away with some things. And even though we say David did these things, and David went through these mental issues and stuff like that, and David lost a child, and David had horrible children. And, and if you want to ever do a great Father's Day sermon, any guy that wants to ever teach a sermon, David is your Father's Day sermon. How are you going to do with that? You know? Well, David took all his kids out fishing, and he had a great relationship with them. And they always did. David, really? David had some issues being a daddy, you know? And I want to say, God, why did you do this? Because David, what? was always, his heart wanted to, wanted to find God constantly. He always wanted a relationship with God. Even in his normal dog day moments to his horrible days, he was still seeking God's face. And I think that's interesting. Um, 
But when we talk about the generations of Israel, they were horrible. And Jesus now comes on the scene in this earthly time that God says is the perfect time for Jesus to arrive. And the Pharisees were the biggest group of false teachers there ever was that had led this nation astray and were continually leading them, them astray. And they were not, because of the Pharisees, they were never ready for the arrival of the king nor the king's kingdom. You with me? The religious leaders were not kingdom-oriented. Uh, they outrightly rejected their Messiah by Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is done with this group of people. And then he'll take a whole chapter just to read the riot act to them. Um, but there was no faith by them for, for their Messiah. That's why the kingdom ended up getting postponed, because they could not lead their people to their king. Uh, and all of Israel... In order for the king to set up his kingdom, all of Israel, as a nation, has to fall before their king. And in order for that to happen, they had to see their need for righteousness. Do you understand that? So let's just briefly, we're going to, get, we're going to go to a, an outline we're going to use for the coming weeks. Uh, these are the five things Jesus addresses in, I call it the law. He's not really dealing with the law. If I don't know how many of you know the Ten Commandments. Anybody know the Ten Commandments? I'm not going to make you stand up and say them. You know the Ten Commandments. Good. The first four is all about God's relationship with men. Right? Four. The next six are all about man's relationship with men. And we're not succeeding on either end of that. Okay? Nation of Israel failed on every point from one. You know, it's funny. Moses comes down with the tablets and they're worshiping a golden calf. What? Look at this. That's number one. <laughs> Are you serious? Anyway, this is what Jesus addresses. He addresses murder. It's in the Ten Commandments, right? Yes? Okay. Adultery, Ten Commandments, right? Jesus addresses that. False vows, Ten Commandments. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, not in the Ten Commandments. Not in the Ten Commandments. And love your neighbor. I love this. Let's just turn to this real quick because I, I just want to, again, if we're going to end the morning, let's have a little bit of humor that we get from God's word. Um, and this is when we know he's really dealing with the rabbinics, okay, or the Pharisees. He says in verse 43, You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where did they get that? Now, it does say, the Bible does say, love your enemy. But there's not a place, I mean, love your, love your neighbor, excuse me. There's not a place that it says, hate your enemy. Now, although there are places where there is hatred uh, shown towards an enemy, it's, there's, not a, there's not a law for that, you know. Um, just think of this. Um, when you say, love your neighbor, and then it says, hate your enemy, who's going to adjudicate who's your neighbor and who's your enemy? Isn't that kind of fun? That guy riding right in front of me in that car, I know he's not my neighbor. I haven't seen him in my hood. He must be an enemy. I'm going to push him off the road. He's driving like, i got to get him out of my... Whatever it might be. You start weighing who is your neighbor, and your neighbor becomes what? Just like the Samaritans. Who's my neighbor? Your neighbor is anybody that's in your periphery, whether family, friends, whatever it is. That's your neighbor. Who's your enemy? God doesn't really define that. We know who the enemy of God is, which should be our enemies. But the God's going to deal with that, right? But I love that. Because Jesus does go on to say, but I say to you, love your enemies. What? <laughs> what? 
He doesn't even say deal with the love of your neighbor. He says, love your enemies. Now you've got to love my neighbor and my enemies? I can't hate anybody? What kind of life is that? A righteous life. How, how do I do that? How can I possibly do that? And we'll see in the coming weeks what he's saying to his audience, his specific audience, and how it applies to us. So my, my point is, as we go through these different things, I don't know how long we're going to be in each one. I would like to just be a session in each one. But we may take some time, or like for adultery, we may deal with some of that in Matthew chapter 19, so we can get through some things. But there, there's some interesting questions that will come out of this, so uh, be, prepared, be prepared with three by five cards. We're going to stand, pray, and we're going to get out of here a little early, five minutes or so. So let's stand and pray. The reason we stand and pray, it makes you easier to get your foot out the door faster, I guess. No, because some of you have been sitting for a while. And if you're going to watch games today, you're going to be sitting longer. So this is like your first athletic moment. (laughs) So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and and the word. We thank you for Matthew and his willingness to put it down to to, uh, deal with the issues necessary. That at that time they were confronted with basically who their Messiah was and the righteousness needed to get into his kingdom. And fathers, we examine these things. We want to make sure we hold to the whole counsel of the word, not just uh, a look at Matthew 5 or, or Matthew 6, but we uh, involve the whole word within our teaching and the whole scope. Father, I thank you for those uh, out, outside listening via v- YouTube or audio this morning. Lift them up. Some of them may be ill. Some of them may be dealing with family issues. Uh, I was told to give a shout out to Alan, so be with Alan as he adjusts to his new uh, regime there in, in Missouri. Father, we also want to lift up Rick and, and Billy as Rick is dealing with uh, things that he cannot probably recover from. Just strengthen uh, that that situation. Help, we pray for the doctors and, and the uh, nursing homes involved in that issue so he finds a proper place for care. Father, again, we thank you for those that are here this morning. Uh, we pray that they take this understanding out with them, chew on it, and it becomes part of their personal theology. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace and peace.